Before we get into this episode, I want to give you a heads up that I was only able to get about 30 minutes with Tom, and it was an awesome 30 minutes. He has a great, great interview, and it was just so much fun talking with Tom, and, and really an honor. Um, Tom Kalinske is just one of those people that had so much impact on, on our lives growing up because of the decisions that he was making at Sega which is so, so cool to be able to, to finally chat with him. Also, there was a little bit of a sound gate on his microphone, so sometimes it takes a second to kick in, but it will, and uh, I did my best to clean that up. Finally, over the next two months, I'm going to be running the Summer of Dreamcast. That means on back of my play, we're going to be talking about Dreamcast stuff exclusively. More information about that is coming up on next week's episode. Check it out there. But trust me, plenty of Sega Dreamcast discussion. I'm covering the whole thing like it was a college course. And then finally, we're also going to be doing Shenmue 2. Yeah, I know. Shenmue 2. It's all coming up. Thank you for listening. And here's the interview with Tom. Again, it was an absolute blast. I hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome back to Back in My Play. My name is Kevin Larrabee and I am very honored to have someone that was very vital in our lives growing up uh, in the battle between Sega and Nintendo and it is just an honor to have Tom Klinsky on the show. Tom, how are you? I'm great. Uh, thanks for having me. This is going to be uh, an absolute blast because this is the thing with, with us growing up, We all these things are going around in this console war, as as Blake decided to put it in console wars, um, but it, it is just going to be awesome to to talk about some of this stuff. And if people don't know, um, hopefully you've already read console wars and listened to the many interviews that I've done with Blake. But um, Tom was CEO of Sega from 1990 to 1996 during uh, during that era when you know Sony, or excuse me, Sega and Nintendo were going at it, and uh, along with that you did uh, some amazing things to help Sega out and make that battle uh, very even grounds for Sega and Nintendo. So we're going to get into it today. So uh, again, thank you for for taking the time out of your day. And um, I think we'll just kind of get right into it. Fine with me. So where I had a lot of people actually tweet questions to uh, or for this interview as well, and I'm going to get to some of those, but um, I think it is maybe best to just kind of start back at the beginning and talk a little bit about um, what convinced you to to go work for for Sega for people who have not read the book and uh, I guess what made that decision uh, what made that decision happen? Well, it certainly was unexpected. I mean, I was literally lying on a beach in Hawaii with my wife and daughters, and uh, the chairman seat. EO of, of Sega had tracked me down and interrupted my vacation. And he said, you got to come to Japan with me and take a look at what 16-bit technology can do for the video game industry. Mm-hmm. And of course, I thought he was nuts. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you know, interrupting me where I was resting. And, but anyway, I ended up going and he was right. I fell in love with 16-bit technology. Now, you got to imagine... I had not been paying tremendous amount of attention to the video game industry. So the last thing I was aware of and familiar with was in television back mm-hmm. when I was at Mattel. And so you can imagine what those graphics and those games looked like. And then imagine C 
15, 16 bit compared to that. And so we really could make this successful. Uh, and, and then, of course, the other uh, element was he showed me a color handheld uh, product that became Game Gear. And again, I hadn't seen a color LCD screen with that type of gameplay on it before. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, we can make this. This is much better than Game Boy. So that's what really convinced me. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you got to have seen those things and been like, well, this is way better than what the competition has to offer. This is not that it's going to be easy, but hey, at least I have a couple weapons that are going to be very effective in this uh, in this battle, I guess. Yes, and then the other thing was I was very much aware of how the, the Japanese company's reputation of always making all the decisions back in Tokyo. And I said, mm-hmm. look, if I'm going to do this, you got to let me make the decisions for the Western world out of uh, California. And at the time, he agreed with that. So that was the other selling point. And, and you, I mean, well, I guess it's brought up uh, quite a bit in the book that, uh, you know, even with that agreement, you know, there were still plenty of battles between Sega of America and Sega of Japan when it came to how to market the console and the games in America. Yeah, that's for sure. And after I'd been with the company for three or four months, I went back to Japan and in the so-called boardroom, I presented my ideas, which were basically we're going to lower the price of the hardware from $199 to $149, which they didn't like because they weren't making much money on the hardware as it was. Mm-hmm. We're going to take uh, Altered Beast out of of the hardware as the pack-in game, and we were going to replace it with the best thing we had going, which appeared to be Sonic the Hedgehog. And uh, we were going to take on Nintendo in advertising and make fun of them and position them as the little kid's product, and we were going to position ourselves as being appropriate for teens and college-age players. And we were going to do a lot of sports games because Nintendo didn't have many sports games, and we're going to have to do those in the United States, so we had to staff up. Mm-hmm. I hire a lot of developers to do sports games um, and, and other American and uh, Western world licenses from Disney and from television shows and movies and what have you. And, of course, they didn't like any of this. They thought this was the dumbest thing they'd ever heard. Uh, and and they were all talking in Japanese and Shinobu Toyota was sitting next to me saying, well, they think you're nuts. They don't want to do any of this. Uh, and Nakayama got up to leave the room, and he was very red-faced because he obviously didn't agree either. And he, and he reached the door, and he turned, and he said, well, nobody here agrees with anything you said, but but I promised you you could make the decisions for the Western world, so go ahead and do it. And that was that. Well, I, I mean, I as someone that I've been out to Tokyo like eight times in the last four or five years for, for work and for, for um, travel and things like that. And you kind of look around in the, the retro game shops and there isn't a lot of mega drive stuff. Like the console was not nearly the success in Japan as it was in America. And that what, that's what makes us even crazier that they would kind of just scoff at these ideas that you have, even when it was not even doing very well in Japan. Yeah, well, they never got above. I don't think it was much. Uh, we, you know, we reached at some point of over fifty percent market share in the video mm-hmm. game industry in the United States and in Europe. I don't think they ever got much over ten percent in mm-hmm. Japan, and yet they always felt they 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 knew better, I guess. <laughs> and, and what I didn't, what I wasn't aware of, and actually Blake made me aware of this. I wasn't aware of the animosity toward me personally and toward Sega of America that grew in the ranks of middle management mm. in Japan. 
And it grew because Nakayama would walk into the decision room every Monday and beat the hell out of the Japanese marketing and product development guys and say, how come you're not as successful as Tom is in the United States? Well, if every Monday you're getting beaten up and you're being compared to Sega of America, you're going to stop wanting to help those guys. And, and I didn't realize that was occurring, and it obviously did occur. Yeah, I mean, that's... It's amazing. And even even in today, uh, there is still. I mean, I've I've worked with a couple Japanese con- uh, companies with with what I do for work, and there is still. Um, I mean, it's 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 absolutely a different culture. Not only you know in day to day life, but also the business culture is is very different. The corporate structure is very is very different than kind of like the more collaborative version that we might even have here in the states. Uh, and it seems like that was definitely kind of like what you were going up against back then. Yeah, I think that's right. So, I, I mean, there are so many things that, that we could discuss, and maybe I'm going to jump around uh, a little bit just to make sure we can best use the time. But uh, something that came up a lot and in terms of what I want to talk to you about and from the listeners of my show is, you know, if you ever thought, are we going too far in the marketing? Are we going too far in the the edginess of the games that we're putting out? And you you guys kind of got to a little bit of a head when... Night Trap came out, and that became a really big deal uh, in terms of you know parents yeah. being outraged about violence in video games and things like that. So um, I'm wondering if you ever thought, you know, were we taking it too far in the advertising or in the in the games that we're producing? Yeah, actually, no, I don't. I don't think we did, uh, and I don't think we were. I mean, th- the point was the video game industry back then was pretty much a uh, eight year old boy to fourteen year old boy business, right. and we were to change it to being an all-age business, if you will, and eventually including women into the uh, market as well. And I think history proves we were correct. Today, today uh, you know, the industry was $3.5 billion when I joined. And today, the, the industry is a $91 billion industry, larger than the movie business. And the average age of a player is in their 30s. Mm. The average age of the player when I was at Sega was 18. We had changed it from being a little boy's business to an 18-year-old average age, which meant we had you know, 50% over 18 and 50% <laughs> under 18 uh, as players. But I don't think we ever pushed it too far. And the Night Trap thing to me was a surprise. I will tell you that. I was quite surprised mm-hmm. because we thought it was – like a campy horror movie. You know, right. You know, we thought it was sort of funny. You know, you know the, the player is supposed to save the damsels from these monsters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it wasn't like we were trying to hurt the girls. We were trying to save them. And by the way, you never knew what the monsters did with them anyway. I mean, they just disappeared. <laughs> so, I mean, we thought it was a campy kind of thing. And I was quite surprised that people took it so seriously. Uh, and then remember, we also did the rating system, and, and that's another indication of how we intended to expand the market from being a little kid's business to being an all-age business, no different than the movie business, and that's who we aspired to be like. They had a rating system. We wanted a rating system. Yeah, even even back then, the the content of that game was very much like a Saturday night scare spectacular that would be on you know the USA Network or ABC or something like that. It wasn't anything where there was lots of violence. There wasn't an ounce of blood in it. It was just it seemed oh. like parents trying to. Well, was it parents or was it was was Nintendo also kind of working you know against you guys to make it look like you know Sega is not a family friendly company. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Nintendo was behind a lot of it. I mean, they they got their 
Putin or something, to slay Gordon, to, to be uh, offended by the game. And he got other senators to be offended by the game. And then they got news people to be offended by the game. I mean, I was trying to, I was, I was, I was interviewed on uh, Good Morning America, I think it was. And I'm trying to defend Night Trap as being this campy, silly horror game. They had it running on another monitor while they were talking to me, mm-hmm. and of course they were showing the, the what they considered the violent parts of the game. So they sort of the media went after us as well, and that's what uh, that's what of course caused the, the Senate hearings. But I think that all turned out okay as well. Um, so kind of kind of going off of that um, as well. What was I going to say? I, I mean, it, it's amazing. I know it's. It's, you know, 20, 25 years later, 20 years later, I'm guessing that today I, I, I work with middle school kids as part of my, my main job. I coach middle school kids and strength and conditioning stuff. And I'll have 10 year olds, 11 year old kids coming in saying, talking about Grand Theft Auto 5, talking about playing Call of Duty. And it seems like, you know, maybe that's not too big of an issue today. And those are vastly, vastly um you know, more violent video games than what we were seeing back then. It seemed to be just like parents didn't know what to think of these games that could potentially be more realistic than, you know, just a bunch of cartoons on the screen. Yeah, that's that's for sure. I'm, I'm, I'm quite surprised at how much realism is in. I mean, the blood today looks a lot more realistic than yeah. the blood in Mortal Kombat when, when we allowed it on the, on the Genesis, that's for sure. Uh, and again, I, I think that the you, know, you you point out that a lot of middle schoolers are are playing these these types of games, but a lot awful lot of adults are playing them. For that's sure, the uh, the other thing that's changed so much. Uh, maybe let's talk about Mortal Kombat for a second because that was you know in every kid's neighborhood that was a big deciding factor of you know whose house are we going to go to which version of Mortal Kombat do you have do you have it on the Genesis or do you have it on the Super Nintendo and of course we're going to go to the person's house that has it on the Genesis because of the blood code I, I'm curious do you remember were there any discussions between uh, you and the developers of Mortal Kombat are saying like, hey, is it is it okay if we put in the, the blood code? Is that something they had to run by you, or do you remember any of that? Oh, sure. Yeah, it was very much a conscious decision on, on our part, uh, and we, you know, we worked with Acclaim to, uh, to make our game as close to the, the arcade version as we could. Mm-hmm. Now, I must tell you, that was another thing that Japan was very worried about, and Japan didn't really want us to do. Mm-hmm. But I felt it was another way of differentiating us from Nintendo, mm-hmm. and I was quite confident that when we did it, I, I knew it would be controversial, but I also knew that the, the teenagers and certainly the college-age kids would flock to our version versus the Nintendo version with their green goo instead of red blood. <laughs> Oh yeah, that was. That, I mean, that, there there were so many pieces that that you guys kind of put together in a row that were just blow after blow after blow to this you know almost unsurmountable, undefeatable uh, monster that was Nintendo uh, at the time. But you guys kept going, you know, one after the other. Another one of those blows was the the amazing campaign that you had, where you had you know a kid looking at two televisions. One was that boring super mario world on it and the other 
with Sonic the Hedgehog. And of course, like if you are a kid that wants to be cool, which one are you going to want to play? You're going to want to play the boring Mario game or are you going to go and do like the incredibly fast Sonic game? How if, like how big of a blow was that ad for you guys? How 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 effective was it? And what did you guys really see in terms of, you know, differentiate or guess differences in sales? Well, it was really effective, and we saw immediate spikes in sales. And that was really uh, Al Nielsen. Uh, you know, he really had a big hand in in creating our, our marketing and our advertising. And remember, also before that commercial, even he had the the genius to do the mall tour. Yes, where we we bought some super we brought some super NESs into the U.S. before it was released in the U.S. And we did a mall tour where we said, "Hey, here's what the here's what's coming. This mm-hmm. is going to be the, the Super NES from Nintendo. Look at it versus Genesis, and look at the gameplay on it. In fact, play the games on it, and then tell us which one you like." And over eighty percent of the players in those mall tours chose the Genesis. So again, genius. Very, very effective. I, I love the story of um, of Al taking the the new Super Famicom and Super Mario World home for the weekend just as a test to see, is this going to be something that is going to be devastating or not? Is this going to be something that is going to be drastically better than what we have to offer on the Genesis? And then coming back and saying, nope, we got, we got a way. We got a way to market around this. And... Um, it, it was it was, it seems like almost like like black ops to go to Tokyo pick up a super famicom come back and you got like that's something that i guess we couldn't really experience as much today in the connected world but i mean you guys kind of had had some intel and you knew you had some time to act on it yeah we we were pretty good at getting intel on on nintendo and of course using it to our advantage i mean the other the other brilliant one was, and I think it's depicted in Console Wars. In fact, I know it is. That when we heard they were going to do their price drop and at, uh, at CES or E3, I can't remember. It must have been CES. And, and we, we knew they were going to announce it the next morning. And so we worked all night printing mm. up uh, PR, not just PR releases, but uh, newspaper, uh, phony newspaper headlines with our new price and announcing <laughs> it. And, and of course we had to get Japan's buy off on this because it was hardware and, and uh, they were responsible for hardware. So we had to convince Nakayama that a price drop was appropriate and it was appropriate to beat Nintendo to punch on it. And we worked on the finally got him to agree at midnight or something. And then we worked all night with some press we found open and printed this stuff up. And then we had all of our employees put it under the door hotel rooms of the buyers uh, and analysts of the of the industry so they would see that we had lowered our price and so therefore when nintendo announced it the next morning it looked like they were just copying us Mm. it's i mean this is something that uh, we'll probably come back to a couple times but i mean that's just uh it's something that has come up is we've kind of distanced ourselves from from that and seen so many Sega fans, it, it seems like this, the fans of Sega and the fans of the, the Genesis era or the Sega Saturn era around that time are just so much more loyal and dedicated. And I don't know if that was part of 
kind of feeling like like an underdog for for the fans as well the people that were buying these games these consoles and, and having to constantly go to school or go to work and defend themselves against the person that had the super nintendo but i'm curious because you've been going around and you see you get to meet a lot of these fans of the sega genesis and sega in general um is that like the feeling that you get when you when you meet these fans that not that they're more passionate than Nintendo fans, but almost like they have a little bit more investment. Very well put, and I agree completely with you. And I'm I'm actually I was quite surprised about it, but you're you're absolutely right. The the Sega loyalists, if you will, are they were part of a of a team. They were part mm-hmm. of something that was cooler than Nintendo. And they felt special about it, and they still feel special that they understood what we were trying to do, and a little scrappy company beating this big giant <laughs> company that uh, had a dominant place in the in the market. Uh, and and I think they appreciated all these different things that we did, whether it was a mall tour or sponsoring MTV or sponsoring rock concerts mm. or. Crazy thing we did on Alcatraz Island, Rock the Rock, <laughs> and, and then of course all the sports games helped a lot. And certainly the the, uh, the aggressiveness in our advertising, making fun of Nintendo, helped a tremendous amount. Yeah, I recommend if if you guys have the, uh, I'm sure it's on like the Kindle version as well, but the um, go open your console or book uh for console wars your paperback and take a look at the pictures from rock the rock again very very inventive uh ways to to advertise and to get the word out and to just you know show that like you know this is something that's completely different uh than nintendo and you, you guys also had another big fan you know maybe not in walmart initially but it seemed like retail was a very big fan of, of you and sega because you know Nintendo put so many restrictions and they were really kind of, they had total control over what retail could make and how they could set the price and things like that. Um, how, how important was the ability to, to give retail a little bit more leeway when it came to how they sold Sega products? Oh, absolutely. That was crucial. And you're right. They, they felt that Nintendo was too controlling of them, would only give them limited quantities of hardware, what Nintendo thought the retailer should have, not what the retailer thought he should have, mm-hmm. whether it was hardware or software. And that rubbed them wrong. You know, they, they felt, come on, we know our business better than Nintendo does. Why is Nintendo telling us how much of a product we have or not mm-hmm. have? So they were very grateful that we came along and were friendlier and looser in our. Uh, we didn't have those kinds of uh, kinds of restrictions. We tried to provide retailers what the retailers wanted, not mm-hmm. what uh, we thought they sh- should have. So they like they liked that about us, and and the holdout was Walmart, and that was that was a great story too. Well, yeah, what you guys did is you you set up shop down the street from Walmart's corporate offices. Now I'm I'm thinking, you know, and, and today one of the big staples of you know lots of malls and things like that are are Apple stores. But you guys set up a a Sega store where people could come in and, and play the Genesis and play uh, a bunch of games. Like, was that something that was like you know we're going to write this off? We're not going to make a lot of money in the store. Or was it profitable? And I mean, it was seem to have been used as a technique to just constantly say, hey, Walmart, look at like these are people they're they're coming in, they're buying consoles. They should be going into Walmart. 
Yeah, you get, you can imagine. I mean, I had grown up at Mattel. I knew Sam Walton. Mm. I knew everybody in senior management at Walmart. And for them to turn us down initially because yeah. of this fear they had that Nintendo would punish them was uh, unbelievable to me. Mm. And so it just sort of hit me over the head when I was, I think I was with either Al or uh, Shinobu Toyota when we were driving out of out of Walmart headquarters in Bentonville and you, you, you turn right on Highway 49 and there's this strip mall. And it's right around the corner, practically. And I, so I said, "Let's rent that, that out and, uh, and 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 build a store." And so we had a couple of our employees come out and build the store and put a huge sign on top of it: "Come play Sega Genesis for free." We had lines of teenagers in hours outside of that that store, and then we we plastered Bentonville, Arkansas with radio and television. We bought every billboard we could about saying <laughs> uh, Sega does what Nintendo don't at those days. Mm-hmm. And then we bought the seat cushions at the University of Arkansas uh, football stadium down, you know, that was about 40 miles away. And, uh, and so every time, uh, they, you know, they held up their seat cushions for doing different signage in the stadium, you'd see Sega on the other side mm-hmm. of it. And so it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, and, and I, I would call the, the vice president at, of merchandising at Walmart up every week and I'd say, Hey Rick, you know, this week at target, we're out selling Nintendo. <laughs> Here's the numbers. And by the way, at Toys R Us, we are, and at Best Buy, we are, and at, uh, uh, in those days, Babbage's and so mm-hmm. forth, et cetera, we walked, thought you'd want to just stop it. <laughs> Stop it! We'll buy the damn product. <laughs> I, I I couldn't believe the story of you know you guys going down there and saying, "Hey, look at we have we have the Super Famicom. We have this this top secret hardware that Nintendo is going to be bringing over to the states this Christmas." But I want to show you. Look at they. This isn't better than what we have on the Sega Genesis. And they were so I don't know if it was because they felt you know so much pressure from Nintendo, but they wouldn't even take a look at it. No, it was it was bizarre, absolutely bizarre. But we got them. They came around, and then they became uh, very friendly to us. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I can't even imagine um, really any other company that has that kind of. I'm sure there is, but any other. I don't know if you can think of any companies that have that kind of hold on retail today, where they can almost eliminate the competition because of the consequences that retailers could have by bringing in someone that would compete against them. It's a great point, and I can't think of anyone either. Um, I think there have been periods of time historically when it's occurred, but it's, mm-hmm. it's never lasted very long. Uh, I think there was a point when I was at Mattel where with the Barbie business was so huge in the, those days that we, we we probably could have kept competition out had we wanted to. It just mm-hmm. never occurred to me to want to in those days. You know, I always believed in, let's compete. You want to compete? Let's compete. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe it's also different today. Where I guess if people felt like there was some kind of uh, suppression, or you know, there there could be some outrage on the internet where people or retailers would have to give in from the the social media presence that we deal with today. But um, yeah, it's very fascinating. Um, yeah, and I think you're right. Today's completely different, and the social pressure wouldn't allow that type of domination uh, to. A- well, I want to ask you, I want to talk a little bit um, before we go back to the past about the current retail landscape when it comes to two video games, because, 
I mean, like we said, it's, it's a very different landscape today. It's a very different playing field. And we now have these three players. Nintendo's still sticking around. We have Sony and we have Microsoft. And now it seems to be much friendlier between the companies. But um, I'm kind of curious if you have any thoughts on on where things are, are at today, especially with, I mean, Nintendo's struggling a little bit right now and, and they're looking to get back in the game. Uh, seems like early next year. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, again, I'm I'm really pleased that the industry has grown to the size that it is at 90, roughly ninety billion dollars bigger than the movie industry, and the console business part of that I think is only about twenty five billion only. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when I started in the industry, it was three and a half billion. But anyway, so the console business is still huge, and the online PC business is of course enormous, mm-hmm. uh, and then you have the the mobile side uh, with the you know, smartphones and tablets uh, being the, largely the remainder of that business. And it, it, that part is amazing to me. I, I never would have guessed the days that I was involved in the industry that you could do kind of a short game that wasn't even quite finished, mm-hmm. it out on phones and people would play it for 10 minutes and you could determine what they liked by looking at how they were playing and build in more of the things they like for and revise it on the fly almost, you know, and the next week have more of the things in it that they like and get rid of some of the things they don't like and, and just keep iterating on the game without ever really finishing it. That mm-hmm. never would have occurred as possible. Well, I, I mean, something that, that I, I don't know if it's, I guess it is a little bit of a trend where there, there's companies that to, tend to get arrogant. Um, I mean, we've seen it, with Nintendo, it happened with the happened multiple times with Nintendo. Um, you know, going from the Super Nintendo to the N sixty four, they had a big um, tick up after the GameCube when they released the Wii. But then, you know, kind of a little bit of a loss with the the Wii U and Sony ran into the same problem. Great run with PlayStation one, PlayStation two, got a little cocky. PlayStation three did not do as well. Came back with the PlayStation four, and then Microsoft three sixty did great, and then they got a little arrogant. Xbox One, again, had some issues out of the gate. Um, so is this something that you've recognized as well? There's just been like a common trend because Nintendo, again, it seemed like they were very arrogant when they had you as a competitor back then, and they didn't pay you the respects. And then when it was too late, uh, there was nothing they could really do about it. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And and it, it's, a, it's sort of, a, I guess, a natural occurrence that these com- companies get arrogant and then somebody knocks them down and they uh, have to get scrappy and rebuild it. And you, we're going through those cycles uh, uh, right now. It'll be interesting to see what Nintendo does next because they've clearly been knocked down substantially by, uh, by both Sony and Microsoft. Is there is there anything that, that, that companies could do to avoid that? Or is that just something that naturally occurs in in many markets? Well, I think you could avoid it if you if you if you had the uh, the vision to be uh, I don't want to say a friendly competitor, mm-hmm. to be more alert as to and more responsive to your consumer audience, to the things that they really like about your hardware or software and uh uh, and, and, and not try to just keep pushing things down the consumer's throat, if you would. So I think I think there is a I think there's market feedback is what sometimes the companies don't listen 
to do well enough. Uh, this is this is going in a completely different direction, but I would I wanted to ask you about um, leadership skills and 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 the things that you know leaders should have to be successful to do to help the people that they're working with be the best that they can be. So I was wondering if there's anything, I mean, you've had an incredible career, anything that, that is continuing, any like advice that you have for people that are in leadership positions to, to do the best job that they can. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, it always sounds sort of trite, I think, but I was very much, uh, I push people pretty hard. I, I, if people tell me I used to be very tough. I'm a much easier person today, I think. Uh, but I would always keep pushing them. Is this the best you can do? Don't we have any other ideas? What's, what's your most unique idea? Mm. And I would push people for uniqueness and newness uh, uh, in different things. And, and it, it worked well for me. And I also was very uh, – I hired some very smart people. I didn't necessarily hire people who had – Grown up completely in the industry. I mean, Ellen Beth Van Busker came from the skiing industry, as I recall. Uh, Diane Frenassier came out of the food business. Uh, you know, so now Al was a hardened, uh, you know, game guy. He started as a buyer for pennies buying video games. So he was the the one guy who came really out of the industry completely uh, that I relied heavily on. But I just, you know, I I really liked my team. And they came up with good ideas, and I pushed them to come up with even better ideas. And then I allowed them to do what they what they basically wanted to do, you know. And and they were very smart, and and we came up with so many things that had never been done before. Okay, well let's uh, let's wrap things up uh, for now. And and again, you know, I think people are going to make sure like go and and I can't. I can't recommend it enough. If you haven't picked up Console Wars and, and you want to get the full story before, I know Blake has said that he's working on, on a documentary. There's going to be a full feature film. I don't know, Tom, do you have, do you have any requests for who's going to play you? Oh, I'm afraid to say who I would like to have me play me because I'm sure then it won't happen. But I will tell you, my daughters think it should be Bradley Cooper because we obviously look alike and I have the same abs as he does. Oh, perfect. All right. Well, just, you know, just get a sign on the dotted line. And uh, I'm sure Bradley is uh, getting ready to uh, get ready for the get ready for the film. So um, I, I do want to recommend if um, if people aren't already and I mean, who isn't on Twitter? I want you to go on Twitter and, and follow Tom on there because you're going to get lots of great anecdotes and lots of great just pieces on on Sega's history just an incredible uh vast amount of stuff it's at Thomas T Kalinsky and I'll have that in the show notes so you can check that out as well and uh again Tom I thank you so much for for taking the time to jump on there it, it's really cool to talk about this stuff as someone that's you know lived through it as a as a child growing up and has been able to digest this stuff even more and uh again thank you so much it was great to talk to you Great talking with you, Kevin. You obviously know a tremendous amount about the uh, video game business and the history of it, and I really enjoyed chatting with you. And again, you know, we got cut a little short. Uh, Al Nielsen, believe it or not, was calling him for for a meeting, so we had to we had to wrap up there. But uh, hopefully, we'll get Tom back on the show, and and Al as well. I'd love to talk to him about Sega in the '90s. So, uh, thank you so much for for again tuning in to this week's episode. Next week. 
it's it's the start. It's the start of the summer of Dreamcast. Get ready. It is going to be nine nine ninety nine all over again, and it's going to be better than ever. We are celebrating the Dreamcast, and we are again giving you the information that you need to play this stuff as best as you can today. And what games you need to pick up? What accessories? What should you be importing from Japan? What should you be grabbing from Europe? And don't forget. We live in 2016. We have mods available so we can get the best picture and audio, and we can even make those drives sound better than ever. So tune in for all that stuff in the upcoming weeks. And if you need anything, don't ever forget, go to backinmyplay.com. Go to fitcast.network and hit me up on Twitter at Kevin Larrabee. Make sure you're checking out Tom Klinsky on Twitter as well. And please, if you do enjoy this show, please help support it going forward by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash back in my play it means so much when i see new people jumping on there and helping me make this show every single week showing their support showing that they value what we are doing with back in my play thank you so much we'll see you next week 